following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. This is December 6th, and I'm going to continue the topic that Mark has started, talking about concentration. cultivation of concentration. And I'm going to begin with a poem by Wisła Samborska. She won the Nobel Prize. She's a Polish poet who won the Nobel Prize, I think, around 2000. This is a poem called Life While You Wait. Life While You Wait. Performance without rehearsal, body without alterations, head without premeditation. I know nothing of the role I play. I only know it's mine. I can't exchange it. I have to guess on the spot just what this play is all about. Ill-prepared for the privilege of living, I can barely keep up with the pace that the action demands. I improvise, though I loathe improvisation. I trip at every step over my own ignorance. I can't conceal my hayseed manners. My instincts are for hammy histrionics. Stage fright makes excuses for me, which humiliate me more. Extenuating circumstances strike me as cruel. Words and impulses you can't take back, stars you'll never get counted, your character like a raincoat you button on the run, the pitiful results of all this unexpectedness. If I could just rehearse one Wednesday in advance or repeat a single Thursday that has passed, but here comes Friday with a script I haven't seen. Is it fair, I ask, my voice a little hoarse, since I couldn't even clear my throat off stage. You'd be wrong to think that it's just a slapdash quiz taken in makeshift accommodations. Oh no, I'm standing on the set and I see how strong it is. The props are surprisingly precise. The machine rotating the stage has been turned around even longer. The farthest galaxies have been turned on. Oh no, there's no question. This must be the premiere. And whatever I do will become forever what I've done. One of the stories that's told frequently about the Buddha, one of the stories that he, he told about himself and his early life, is about an experience he had as a child. And it was an experience he remembered before he actually became a Buddha. It was one of the things that helped him find the path of practice that eventually 
found such fruition. You may remember that when the Buddha left his his family's home, he went and he studied with people who were masters of different sorts of meditation techniques, of concentration techniques, of different kinds of mental absorptions in in a way, but they were they were almost like trances. And he became very adept at these very quickly, but at each time realized that when he came out of this particular advanced mental state that he was left with the conundrum that had started his search about why is it that people suffer and how do we deal with this sort of suffering? How do we deal with the unfolding of life? And after he left the teachers who were so intent on just training the the mind to sort of remove itself from the body, he then turned to the body and began years of extreme austerities of just mortification of the body in every kind of way. And he said that he was so emaciated that when he touched his navel, he could feel his spine. And sometimes in Asia, you can see just these amazing statues of the emaciated Buddha before his enlightenment of just just a, a skeletal being. And as he was almost on death's door from these sorts of extreme mortification practices of the body, he had this memory of a childhood experience. And he was, I've heard commentators say he was probably about eight or or nine. He was a, a young boy, and it was the spring. And his father was the head of the Shakya clan. And there was a ritual every year in which it was a fertility ritual and uh, a ritual to bring about a good harvest. And his father would lead the other men, and they would go out, and they would plow the field. They'd have the oxen, and it would be the plowing up of the fields. And I guess the, the oxen were decorated, and it was quite ceremonial and and the, the Buddha, as a child, was taken by his nursemaid and placed under a rosewood tree to sit. And he got to sit, and he just watched this whole unfolding of this ceremony. And he saw all of this sort of excitement of the, the ritual and the men. And as he watched, he also understood in some ways, the tearing up of of the earth, that there was both joy and sorrow, that he recognized the rending of of the earth, and for the insects and the voles and little animals that live in the earth, this was not a happy event. So he saw all this sort of, of had this, this moment of watching uh, sort of cause and effect come together, of seeing this brings on this, of of just having this view of this panorama of life. 
And what he remembered was that when he had this sort of understanding that it brought about a feeling of absorption, that he was in this sort of state of a very pleasurable absorption. But it, it was being completely present in that moment. It wasn't fantasizing. It was really seeing how things were and being really okay with that. And he talked about the conditions for that were detachment and seclusion in that he was placed in this pleasant, he was sitting in this, this pleasant place under this rose apple tree watching this go on. And he remembered this as an adult, as he was undergoing these sort of mortifications. And he recognized that as a child, he had had a kind of insight into the way things were. And that this insight uh, was, was pleasurable. So what he recognized from that remembrance was that this sort of mortification of, of the flesh, this idea of just completely subduing the body, that that really wasn't the way to have a deeper understanding of how things were. And so he decided that, that he would try to do something that was akin to his understanding as a child. And he left the ascetics who really, his fellow uh, practitioners who thought that he was really a wimp. They thought if any of them were going to be enlightened that um, Siddhartha Gautama was because he was just so extreme in his practices. And then he left them. He decided that that was not the appropriate way to pursue this deeper understanding. And he took nourishment, um, restored his body, and then sat down under the Bodhi tree and just really collected his attention and had this enlightenment experience where he understood the Four Noble Truths and, and really understood what it means to abandon suffering, abandon craving, and thus abandon suffering. A lot of commentators have talked about this as what the young Siddhartha Gotama experienced was what's called a jhana state, which is a state of concentration. And it's a very, one of the things to take away from this is that that really can be a very natural state, that there are states of concentration that are really natural. I think that many of us, certainly I, have generally thought of concentration as this sort of teeth-gritting effort to really apply myself to, to something. You talk about, you know, concentrating for an exam or studying or concentrate and, and often it has a kind of striving aspect to it that's pretty unpleasant. The sort of concentration that we're focusing on in talking about the Eightfold Path is 
different, partly because it has a very pleasurable aspect to it. It's a pleasurable absorption, and it's a very wholesome pleasure. The pleasure of a concentrated mind is a very wholesome pleasure. Some of the metaphors that the Buddha himself used to to sort of describe the concentrated state is in one place he talks about it as when water is kneaded into flour and you have a dough, that that sort of absorption of the water in, in the flour. Another metaphor is when there's a spring in a lake and the, the spring comes up in the lake and somehow suffuses the whole lake. When we develop concentration in this way, the hindrances really lose their hold on us. You may remember that we talk about meditation practice, we talk about the five hindrances or the sorts of visitors that inevitably come. Um, Usually people have a particular hindrance that maybe throughout their meditation life or at different times comes and goes that there'll be one or more hindrances. Uh, There's the hindrance of desire, there's the hindrance of restlessness, the hindrance of aversion, um, the hindrance of of sloth and torpor, the hindrance of doubt. So these different sorts of of hindrances often sort of nibble away at our our practice while we're practicing what we're aware of is desire, the wanting mind, the craving mind, you know, wanting to have a more comfortable meditation cushion, you know, craving um, either really wanting better knees or you know, really hating the knees that we have because it's so hard to sit that you know, your knee always hurts or uh, sleepiness that maybe you sit and you notice again and again you're falling asleep and, and that this is your struggle is just to stay awake during practice. Uh, sometimes people sit and they just feel like they could just jump out of their skin that they're so restless or worried about something. Or the other hindrance is doubt. You, know, you spend your time in the cushion thinking, I don't really get this. I'm not, maybe I'm just, I'm just not cut out to be a meditator or I'm not cut out to be a meditator. Now, uh, maybe in a couple of years or you know, maybe, maybe I should um, practice Zen for a while. You know, that, that sort of, the, all the sorts of doubts that come up. And these are really familiar friends to anyone who's, who's meditated. Um, and one of the things that happens as we have more and more concentration is that we have periods of practicing in which the hindrances are absent. And there's really a lot of wholesome pleasure just in having that experience where you may notice that, oh, well, this is interesting. I wasn't wasn't about to fall asleep. I was alert throughout my whole the time I was, was here. Or that you've just kind of made your peace with the leg that always falls asleep and it's just not a big deal. And it just kind of drops off the radar and you're just sitting. 
So what happens when we work with concentration is that we have a chance to really have an experience of practice without hindrances. And a lot of times when we're practicing, you know, sometimes for years and years what we're doing is just trying to work with the hindrances, just trying to make our peace with them, um, trying to be accepting of, of the way things are. And when the mind finally manages to collect itself, even if only for a few seconds, that taste of what it's like to have a collected mind is, is really a very, very wholesome and very encouraging experience. And we can really try to work in a very consistent way to make it more and more likely that this is going to happen for us. We choose an object, and usually most people choose the breath. It's always there. It has some variety, but not usually a lot of, of dramatic variety. For a lot of people, the breath is a really good place to place the attention. But it doesn't have to be the breath. And especially for people who have had issues with their respiratory systems, and for people who, for example, have had chronic asthma, or if the breath is, is something that is an issue for you, it may be much more skillful to choose another object, like hearing. Just bringing all your attention to hearing, that experience of, of hearing that we have in every moment, even when it seems really, really, really quiet, we can still be aware of hearing. And actually, I had one teacher who said that she often used hearing, especially when she was feeling a lot of pain in her body, because it took, when she worked with her breath, it still was very concentrated in this body, and by placing the attention on hearing, she was really able to have a more enlarged awareness in a way. So you might experiment with that if you are someone who has chronically had issues with your breath, um, especially if you've been suffering from asthma or something like that. So the object that you choose actually doesn't matter a whole lot. Some bodily phenomena. Some people, when they practice, are bringing their attention just to the sensation of the body sitting, if they can sustain it, that sensation of being with the, the whole body. What we want to do is find something that we can connect with something that's really immediate. So sort of whole body awareness is often just less tangible. It's a little more amorphous sometimes than the breath or, or hearing. But we find something that we can connect to. And I really find that image of connecting with that same sort of immediacy as the striker and the bell, the 
that that is so direct. For me, that that's a, a really powerful, helpful metaphor. That's the way we want the attention to be, as, as immediate as the striker and the bell. And then sustaining is that sound of the bell, the resonance of the bell. So we try to connect and sustain over and over and over again. And in that moment of really connecting, even if it's just that moment, the hindrance of sloth and torpor is gone. Even if just for that little tiny experience of connecting with the breath, when you're with the breath or you're with hearing, when you're really there, you can, if, if you are, are aware of it, if you've got your antennae out for it, sloth and torpor is gone. You may in a minute sort of go back to that, that drowsy state, but when you connect, that hindrance is gone. So it's that connecting over and over and over again and trying to really have that direct, immediate connection with that sensation. The sluggishness disappears in that moment. And then we try to sustain. And that really is that analogy of the, the resonance of the bell that sort of continuity. In sustaining, it's really helpful to think about that characteristic of investigation. What we're really doing is trying to pay attention, investigate what's there without concepts, without a theory, investigate it as purely and as openly as we can. And it's an investigation of awareness. What's really, what's really going on? What really is this experience? What is this immediate moment-to-moment -moment experience? So this investigation that there is some knowing to be known And, and we can really sort of immerse ourselves in this, that there really is some experience to be known. And that when we have that ex experience, even if it's only for a, a short period of time, that taste of sustaining, that that really helps dispel doubt. That we really can practice, oh, we really can investigate. We really can see this, even if it's just for a moment, that, that short two, three seconds of, of really being with the breath in this kind of open, with this open-hearted, open-minded awareness. What is this experience? The experience without the story, the experience without the judgment. To really be completely there, to follow this experience. What happens when we connect and we sustain, we connect and we sustain, connect, sustain, and there's more and more momentum to that, more and more ability to be with that connecting and sustaining. There's a sort of joy that arises. Sometimes it's called rapture, but 
that often has a kind of uh, freighted connotation. In uh, Pali, the word is piti. And in Sri Lanka, where the Sinhalese are all Buddhists and all really know their, their Pali canon, so they know everyone uh, knows what piti is. I've actually been told by someone in Sri Lanka that there is a condom brand that is called piti. <laughs> Rapture and joy. <laughs> so... What we can notice when we have this experience of, of connecting, sustaining, is really a kind of joy, uh, a real exuberance is, is much too strong a word, but um, there's some energy to that, that joy, which, uh, oh, connecting, sustaining. Um, the continuity of attention. There is something really pleasurable in that. And again, going with that analogy of of the bell, you know, often there is something really pleasurable about that connecting, sustaining that that sort of of resonance. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh has this wonderful little poem. Listen, listen, the sound of the bell brings me back to my own true nature. So I often think about that when I, I hear the bell. And when we, we have the experience of connecting and sustaining the attention over and over and over again, what we notice is that there is some joy to that. And that's why at the end of our meditation period this evening, I asked you just to notice, to see if there was any intimation of joy or ease or pleasure in that connecting and sustaining with the breath. It's the, the continuity of attention. And in that continuity of attention, there is some, some joy. And that really dispels aversion. Gets rid of that hindrance. We really notice we're full of full of this kind of, of joy. The next step in this path is um, happiness. You've all heard the word dukkha for suffering. This kind of happiness is called sukha. There's dukkha and there's sukha. And this kind of happiness is a lightness of being or an ease. Um, the mind relaxes. It's not tight. There's a sort of ease with the way things are. Um, you know, the, the uh, etymology of, of dukkha, it really comes from the idea of the hub of a wheel being bent, sort of out of alignment, a wheel being out of alignment. And sukha is more in alignment. You know, you're at ease with the way things are. It doesn't quite have the energy of joy, but it's, it's really just finding this sort of ease in how things are, this lightness of being. And finally, the last stage of, of the jhana is called often one-pointedness. And I think that that often has, again, that connotation of that sort of, of uh, 
drilling down or uh, that a kind of hardness to it. So I think sometimes that it, it's helpful to think of this one-pointedness as this kind of collectedness, a kind of unification of the mind. Uh, when I was a, a teenager, I used to ride horses a lot. I never had my own horse, but I rode for someone else. And uh, the instruction always before you did anything, you know, like you'd get ready to trot or to canter or to go over some fences, was always you were told to collect your horse, which when I was thinking about meditation, just is such a great metaphor because you sort of bring everything together. You know, you collect your horse, you um, bring that horse to attention, and you have a, a sense of being completely present. It's a kind of unification. Everything comes together. And when we have this sort of collectedness, this unification of the mind, in this state of absorption, there's an equanimity. There's a balance. There's a wholeness. And that this equanimity really dispels the, or leaves no room for, the hindrance of desire. That, that there's this kind of a balance. So these are the, they're sometimes called the, the Janic factors, and I have them. Mark asked me to make copies of, uh, of his handout. So if you're interested at the end of um, the program tonight, you're welcome to have a, a copy of this. But these really develop pretty naturally. It's not something that you have to really worry about kind of figuring all this out one to another, it unfolds very naturally from this idea of connecting and sustaining, connecting and sustaining. And the agenda in this is simply to be aware of what happens when you connect and you sustain, connect and sustain, and that you make an effort. And again here, you really need to bring some balance into this because that the energy that's a kind of striving energy, that gritting kind of energy, often undermines this kind of effort. So I think of it really as a practice in which you bring as much kindness and compassion and tenderness. I mean, it really seems hard to concentrate, although we can say concentration is really a natural experience, it's a pleasurable experience. It's hard to do because we're actually undoing years and years and years of habits of distraction. We talk sometimes about multitasking. You know, that's a, a wonderful thing to be able to do multitasking, but our habits are mostly habits of distraction and overstimulation. So in order to be able to do this, what we really have to do is just undo all of those habits that we've implanted. So it makes sense that it's a hard thing to do, to develop this concentrated mind. But it's not an artificial thing to do. The concentrated mind is um, a pretty 
energetic mind and a pretty pleasurable mind. And I don't mean to idealize uh, small children, but you know, sometimes you, you can see how a, a child just is completely absorbed in something. And many of us have had experiences as adults of being really absorbed in something. Uh, talk about being in the flow, absorbed in playing music, or sometimes people are absorbed in dancing or in playing a sport or creating something. And there really is a kind of organic, natural state of, of mind, which is really pleasurable. And when we're really absorbed in that sort of way, often the self is kind of in the background, that what's really going on is our attention to this moment-to-moment -moment process, that we are connected, that we are sustained. So don't be discouraged if it's taking a while to really develop concentration. You know, the other thing that the Buddha mentioned when he talked about that experience under the rosewood tree is that even though he was in the midst of all of that activity of this annual ritual and all these things going on, that he was off to one side, that he was in pleasant circumstances, and that he was detached and in a way secluded from active participation in, in the events that were, were going on. So developing concentration is really supported by detachment and seclusion. And it doesn't have to be extreme. But it's often more helpful to be in a place where you can be quiet and really settle down and settle down for a period of time. Uh, some of you may have gone on retreat. And if your experience is anything like mine, you know, the first day or two days of, of a residential retreat are really hard. I mean, I usually find that there's so much agitation just getting to the retreat, you know, putting my life in order so that I can take off for a couple of days or a week, and then usually racing to get to the retreat and put my stuff away. And, you know, and, and then when I finally come to sit, you know, the mind is just like a, a stirred up pond. All the stuff going around, what I've left, what I've my aspirations, I mean, it's, it's just all this sort of stuff goes on. And I've done enough retreats to know that I just have to wait that out. It's just like waiting for some uh, stirred up uh, fish tank to settle down for that sediment just to get to, to the bottom. And those first couple of days are always just I'm sleepy, everything hurts, uh, you know, it's as if I've never sat for a long time before. All of that sort of, of stuff, those, the body makes itself known. There's no concentration, at least for me, in, in the first day or two of a, of a retreat. And I just know 
because I've done it enough. I just have to wait it out. Just bring as much patience as I can, uh, as much kindness, as much attention, but just knowing this is the way things are. And it's really after uh, a few days that the mind really begins, the mind and body both really just begin to settle down and be okay with the way things are. And it's a tremendous relief. It's like sometimes I think of it as sort of going into into a soundproof room. You know, the chatter of the mind just stops. And there's just this sort of, of absorption. Sometimes. And sometimes only for short periods of time. But every time that happens, it really gives me confidence that this is possible. Every time that happens. And you may find it happening in in a sit in the evening or in a daily sit that you just notice. You become aware that the mind has calmed down, that you've been able to stay with the breath. And really appreciate, really notice that. That's a very natural thing to happen. And the mind is really happy when it can be concentrated in that sort of way. All of the Brahma-Vihara practices, the loving-kindness practice, the compassion practice, the sympathetic joy practice, and the equanimity practice, all of those practices are concentration practices. And you know, sometimes we talk about Vipassana as being insight practice as being uh, this, this sort of choiceless awareness. One of the things that really supports having this wide-angle view is really being able to settle the mind down in concentration practice. And a lot of times, people in their daily practice find that doing some Brahma-Vihara practice doing the loving-kindness practice, for example, for 10 or 15 minutes at the start of their Vipassana practice really helps settle the mind. Because what we're bringing attention to when we do the Brahma-Vihara practices, we're bringing our attention to the phrase that we're saying, and we're bringing our attention to the feeling that we're cultivating. So we're, again, connecting and sustaining, connecting and sustaining. And that often, you know, if you are wishing loving kindness for someone that you care about, you know, it brings a kind of pleasure to the mind and the body. And it really helps settle down. So this is a, a wonderful way of strengthening concentration practice, is to, to really bring your... Um, bring that Brahma-Vihara practice into, into your daily practice. Um, there's a, a wonderful quote from, uh, actually it's a couple of paragraphs from uh, Tanisaro Bhikkhu. He has talked in an essay on concentration. Once the mind is finally settled, 
is firmly settled. You have something to look at for a long period of time so that you can see what it's made up of. In the typical unbalanced state of mind, things are appearing and disappearing too fast for you to notice them clearly. But as the Buddha notes, when you get really skilled at jhana, you can step back a bit and actually see what you've got. You can see, say, where there's an element of attachment, where there's an element of stress, or even where there's inconstancy within your balanced state. This is where you begin to gain insight as you see the natural dividing lines among the different factors of the mind, and in particular, the line between awareness and the objects of awareness. Another advantage to this mindful, concentrated state is that as you feel more and more at home in it, you begin to realize that happiness and pleasure are possible without any need to depend on things outside. People, relationships, approval from others, or any of the issues that come from being part of the world. This realization helps pry loose your attachments to external things. Some people are afraid of getting attached to a state of calm, but actually, it's very important that you do get attached here so that you can begin to settle down and undo your other attachments. Only when the attachment to calm is the only one left do you begin working on loosening it up as well. Still, another reason for why solid concentration is necessary for insight is that when discernment comes to the mind, the basic lesson it will teach you is that you've been stupid. You've held on to things even though deep down inside you, you should have known better. Now, try telling that to people when they're hungry and tired. They'll come right back with, you're stupid too, and that's the end of the discussion. Nothing gets accomplished. But if you talk to someone who has eaten a full meal and feels rested, you can broach all kinds of topics without risking a fight. It's the same with the mind when it has been well fed with the rapture and ease coming from concentration, it's ready to learn. It can accept your criticisms without feeling threatened or abused. I really find that such a, a helpful idea that it really is when the mind is rested and at ease and we've experienced some joy that we can really look deeply and and really learn. And that goes back to the Buddha's insight under the, the rosewood tree about really it was, and his, his insight when he was about to starve to death, that it was really in that pleasurable state of detachment and seclusion that he was really able to learn. So we can really take heart from that, and we can feel that when we have these moments of connecting and sustaining, of feeling some ease, of feeling a little joy, just in, those, in the well-being of our practice, in the well-being of this moment, letting past and future just be out there, really feeling that well-being in the moment, that really gives us some confidence. And that really is that sort of taste of freedom. It's that taste of what it means to let go of suffering.
and to really live with unbinding, as the Buddha would say. So we have some time for discussion and questions and comments from people. Anything that you'd like to share with the group? metaphor. So it's the idea that, that we, we can invoke that idea of, of a bell as an example of how directly we want to connect with the breath, just as the striker connects with the bell. Uh, and since often, at least when we sit as, as a group, we use a bell, you know, once you have that image in your mind that whenever you hear that bell striking, it can be a reminder for you about, okay, connect and sustain. So it's that connection and then the sustaining of, of the sound. And I think the other reason why I find this such a, a useful metaphor is because the bell is really beautiful. There's something really pleasurable about that connecting and that, that sound of the bell, that resonance. And it's impermanent. And that, too, is, is true. You know, we connect and we sustain with this breath. And then there's the next breath that we connect and sustain and connect and sustain. So it's, it's just a, an image that you may or may not find helpful. And some people find metaphors really useful. And um, I remember one of the first retreats I ever sat was with Kamala Masters. And she said, Impatience is the thief that robs us of our practice. And that for me was just such a great metaphor that I've just never never forgotten it. So I I find it helpful in practice to have these different sorts of, of metaphors. But if that doesn't work for you, just let it go and use whatever is helpful. Yeah. <laughs> 
you know, just, just a lot of those experiences which are just really unsustainable and have this quality of just kind of edginess mm-hmm. to them. And it's just such a different thing. It's just so, it's calm and it's just like, uh, it doesn't have this like, it's not as intense, but mm-hmm. yet it's just, uh, it doesn't have this additional baggage of like, Would you like to hear that again? Visla Simborska. It's called Life While You Wait. Life While You Wait, performance without rehearsal, body without alterations, head without premeditation. I know nothing of the role I play. I only know it's mine. I can't exchange it. I have to guess on the spot just what this play is all about. Ill-prepared for the privilege of living, I can barely keep up with the pace that the action demands. I improvise, though I loathe improvisation. I trip at every step over my own ignorance. I can't conceal my hayseed manners. My instincts are for hammy histrionics. Stage fright makes excuses for me, which humiliate me more. Extenuating circumstances strike me as cruel. Words and impulses you can't take back. Stars you'll never get counted. Your character, like a raincoat you button on the run. The pitiful results of all this unexpectedness. If I could just rehearse one Wednesday in advance or repeat a single Thursday that has passed, but here comes Friday with a script I haven't seen. Is it fair, I ask, my voice a little hoarse since I couldn't even clear my throat off stage? You'd be wrong to think it's just a slapdash quiz taken in makeshift accommodations. Oh no, I'm standing on the set and I see how strong it is. The props are surprisingly precise. The machine rotating the stage has been around even longer. The farthest galaxies have been turned on. Oh no, there's no question. This must be the premiere. And whatever I do will become forever what I've done. Well, let's end tonight with a little metta practice, a little concentration practice. And one of the instructions for metta practice is that you should really try to be as comfortable as you can be. So you want your body to be in harmony with your intention 
this intention of of loving kindness. And I'll just ring the bell once just as a sound to collect us. So just call to mind all those beings who have somehow contributed to our being able to be here tonight. Our parents, our teachers, friends, maybe our companion animals. And perhaps even the difficult beings in our lives, that their their interactions with us may actually be an inducement for us to practice. And we can bring to mind all those beings, or as many as we can, who support our lives indirectly. People who design and maintain the infrastructure. People who offer services to us. all the efforts of people just to keep keep this city functional, keep our places of work functional. And in the other arenas of our lives, we just intersect with the efforts of thousands of people every day. And we can really see ourselves in this vast web of beings just trying to be happy. And tonight we can also especially remember Mark and Wynne and hold them in our hearts, wishing them well on their adventure to Turkey. And wishing each other well. Connecting with that deep impulse, that deep intention for all beings to be free from suffering. May wisdom and compassion
protect us all, always. May we find strength. May we find peace. May we move through this world with ease and with grace, freeing ourselves from all suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.